We'd like to think that over these past four seasons, we have come of age in our commitment to bring voices of conscience and competence to this podium for the edification of those physically present, like yourselves, all interested parties are invited to attend free of charge, and for the benefit of an expanding radio audience, both in this region and in population centers around the country. A number of times over the past four years, the arrival of the speaker has coincided in an uncanny way with the fresh surfacing of issues with which our guest is conversant in depth. It was never more true than today, with the arrival at this platform of Robert E. White. Mr. White was in the Foreign Service of the United States government for 25 years, with special reference to Latin America. He was Latin American Director of the Peace Corps, Deputy Permanent Representative to the Organization of American States, Ambassador to Paraguay, and most recently, under the Carter Administration, Ambassador to El Salvador. He has personal first-hand knowledge of virtually every country in Latin America and has had assignments in Colombia, Ecuador, Chile, Uruguay, Barbados, and yes, his work has also taken him to Grenada. As of July of this year, he assumed the James Warburg Chair of International Relations at Simmons College in Boston. He is also currently Senior Associate, the Center for Development Policy in Washington, D.C. Before introducing Mr. White, I wish to add that his coming to us today has been made possible in good part by the assistance of McAllister College a liberal arts college located in St. Paul that is well known for its worldview, its interest in international affairs, and its attraction to many foreign students. Mr. White, you come to us at a very critical time in the history of our relations with Latin America. We are all eager to hear you share your perceptions about the sources of the crisis there. Welcome to you, sir. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. As we meet, United States combat troops are still engaged in fighting on Grenada. Any president has an obligation to move prudently and swiftly to safeguard the lives of American citizens. But the multiplication of reasons for going into Grenada weakens the case of the administration. If you go into, if, you, if a, there was a combination of diplomatic initiative and military presence to evacuate the citizens of our country and then move out, that would have been one thing. But to use the safety of American citizens as a pretext to overthrow a government and violate 
the solemn treaty obligations of the United States about the juridical equality and territorial integrity of another state is quite another question. And I know we will all listen with great interest to hear what President Reagan has to say this evening. Now, my objective here this noon is to talk to you about Central America, give you a quick summation of how I view Latin America and, Latin, and our policy towards Latin America, talk for a moment about Central America in general, and then focus in on El Salvador as a case study that I hope will enhance your ability to become informed citizens about this vital area of the world. If you ask me to sum up what United States policy towards Latin America has been since World War II, I would sum it up in the phrase, fear of change. We have been so petrified that change would work to the advantage of our enemies and the disadvantage of ourselves that we have violated treaty obligations, sponsored overthrows of governments, and generally identified the United States with the status quo against the forces of change. You can mark all Central American history, or modern Central American history, as dating from the fall of the dictator Somoza in Nicaragua in 1979. Now, Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick draws one conclusion from the fall of Somoza, and I draw another. The lesson that she draws is that as left-wing dictatorships frequently succeed right-wing dictatorships, that it becomes the obligation of the United States to, share up, to shore up the, the dictator who is friendly to the United States and maintain him in power because the consequences are uh, unpalatable for the United States. The lesson that I draw from the fall of the Somosas and the military victory of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua is that once a dictator becomes the object of contempt to his people and to the world, the longer the outside power shores up that dictator, the more radical is going to be the outcome and the more anti-American the people once the inevitable day comes and the dictator falls. Now in El Salvador, where I served as ambassador, we have today a truly tragic situation. Where brother kills brother with arms supplied by the United States, 
and no end is in sight. What led us to this terribly unfortunate past? There are four actors in the Salvadoran drama. There are the rich, the poor, the Catholic Church, and the military. And traditionally, the, the rich have ruled the country for their benefit through the military, and the role of the church was to counsel the poor to wait for their reward the next time around. Well, this all changed in 1968 when the bishops of Latin America met at Medellin, Colombia, and discussed in a profound and lengthy way their responsibilities. And Pope Paul came to Latin America for the first time to share in their deliberations. And you can sum up the outcome of the Medellin Conference in the words of Pope Paul when he said that the poor of Latin America have the right not only to share in the fruits of the society, but also in the direction of that society. And so the bishops of El Salvador, like the bishops of other countries, went back and began to preach not overthrow of governments, not violence, not revolution. Rather, they preached understanding, communication, dialogue, a new uh, compact between and among classes that would result in the Constitution of El Salvador being observed and a gradual integration of the poor into the society and into the benefits of that society. And the poor reacted with what I regard as responsibility and caution. They began to form labor unions. They began to form campesino organizations, Christian-based communities. They even began to revivify some of the political parties that had become moribund. The rich reacted also, but in quite a startlingly different way. First, the rich warned publicly and by characterizing those who were in the leadership of these organizations as communists, as Marxists, as traitors. And when those warnings did not have their traditional and intended effect, they sent the military into the villages and tortured and killed the leaders. And this had always worked in the past, the tactics of terror. But this time, because the poor had leadership, they did not disintegrate. 
Many of them, whole villages, picked up and moved back into the hills and into the mountains and the forests and set up new villages. And on the way, they picked up guns and a capacity to defend themselves. And this is the origin of your revolutionary movement in El Salvador. Poor people, persecuted by the military, uh, going back into the hills and defending themselves as best they can. The fourth actor in the Salvadoran drama, the military, have ruled El Salvador for the last half century. They always held regular elections, but a military man always won those elections. Now, something happens to a society when total power is monopolized by one class. After all, the only reason that you or I participate in politics is in order to gain some access to power. And if power is systematically denied you, then the political institutions of a country atrophy and become beside the point. And if no rich person is ever tried for any crime, as was the case in El Salvador, and rough justice is meted out to the poor either through a gun butt or a gun barrel, then, depending on how serious the allegation, then your judicial system becomes irrelevant. And one by one, the institutions that characterize a civilized society fell away and dried up until by, 19, in, by the 1970s, there were only two national institutions left in El Salvador, the military and the church. And those who accuse the church of participating in politics or involving themselves in politics really don't understand either Latin America or the role of the church. It's escaped the notice of many people, but poor people tend to be more revolutionary than rich people. And if, if you interpret the mandate of your founder as ordering you to identify with the poor, which is what the church thought was its mission, then in the eyes of the military and economic elites, mere identification with the poor meant identification with revolution. And that is why you had Archbishop Romero killed and many priests, nuns, catechists, and other religious leaders tortured and killed. Now, against this drama of the four actors that I've described to you, this all played out against the backdrop of United States power. And remember that United States power in Central America and the Caribbean is substantial. It is great. I'm not talking now about military power. I'm talking about that's force. There's a distinction between force and power. I'm talking about the influence that we can bring to bear. And it is enormous. And many of us 
in those days, from the 60s and the 70s, were sending back reports to Washington stating that these new forces were not necessarily enemies of the United States. In fact, we pointed out many of these emerging forces took their inspiration from our democracy and from our leaders. And we recommended time and again some more, more understanding, more closeness, less identification with the military and economic elites that treated El Salvador and the rest of Central America as some kind of money machine that would made a good life for them and misery for the great mass of people. But regularly, the response came back from Washington in effect reaffirming support for the status quo. Well, in El Salvador, the discontented people, angry people, revolting against injustice, and the response of the military of shooting and killing and torturing led El Salvador until into what could be called chaos. By 1978-79, El Salvador was in a, a state of disintegration. And at that point, something of a miracle occurred. Some young military took over, expelled all the generals, almost all the colonels, and issued a manifesto announcing a revolution. And that manifesto condemned the reality of El Salvador in terms far harsher than I've used here today with you. And announced an agrarian reform and other reforms. And this is when I came to El Salvador, and the United States backed those reforms and refused to send military assistance to the Salvadoran military until they reorganized and uh, stop their systematic violation of human rights. And as a result, things began to come together. I'm not telling you that there was fantastic success in six months, no. But things began to cohere, began to change. And the proof of this is one that in no fewer than three occasions, the right wing tried to overthrow the government. And coups cost money, probably about a million dollars a try. And people do not spend that kind of money unless they see the reality of their country changing to their disadvantage. Secondly, when the rebels, when the revolutionaries announced a final offensive in January of 1981, that, that uh, final offensive failed. And it failed because the people of El Salvador thought they saw a chance to gain uh, a new society without having to die for it. And one of the things that was most convincing to them was that for the first time in the history of Central America, the United States Embassy was the object of violent demonstrations, not from the left, but from the right. 
And so the common man, the common person in El Salvador said, if the lockstep between the United States government and entrenched privilege is finally broken, then just maybe we've got a chance. Well, at this point, the Reagan administration came in. Secretary of State Alexander Haig announced that human rights would be replaced by counterterrorism as a priority in U.S. foreign policy. And we sent in military advisors and military equipment, gunships, automatic weapons, with totally predictable results. When I left El Salvador, the, the revolutionaries had never held one town for more than 24 hours and had never attacked in units of more than 50. Today, they control at least the equivalent of two provinces and routinely attack in units of 500 and more. Why? Because they now see that the Reagan policy of addressing political, economic, and social questions with military force means that they have to fight in order to cast off this unjust and oppressive system. Now, what we have today is a situation where the military of El Salvador are losing the battle. I don't care how many times you read in the newspapers that things are getting better. Believe me when I tell you that they're not. The only reason that the government was able to make these announcements about progress over the last few months has been because it was the rainy season. And this is when the revolutionaries sort of uh, return to their home bases and because they, they don't have mobility. Now that the rainy season is over, you're going to see more and more progress by the revolutionary forces. I'm not saying that they are going to win in six months. I am saying that it is absolutely impossible for the government of El Salvador to win a military victory over the rebel forces in El Salvador. And yet, the Reagan administration refuses to negotiate. During my tenure as ambassador, we always understood that a military victory was not only impossible, it was undesirable. We always advocated negotiations and said that the only proper way to achieve the desired result, which was the reconciliation of the Salvadoran family, was through dialogue, discussion, and negotiation. Today we've rejected that approach and in the rejection of that approach we have had to spread the war. What was basically a civil war in El Salvador 
has now been transferred by the Reagan administration to Honduras and to Nicaragua. We are using Honduras almost like an aircraft carrier. Regardless of the attitudes of the people, regardless of the attitudes of the people, we are we have stationed huge numbers of American troops, and we are sponsoring an invasion of Nicaragua by the so-called Contras, the counter-revolutionaries, again against our solemn treaty obligations. The final objection to this is not only that we're violating our pledges, that we're sowing discord among neighbors, but that it won't work. I guarantee you that six months from now, in spite of battleships, in spite of aircraft carriers, in spite of thousands of troops, United States troops down in Honduras and in Central America as advisors, that six months from today, the Sandinista government, whether for good or for bad, is still going to be in charge in Nicaragua. And I guarantee you that six months from today, the Salvadoran rebels are going to be at least as strong and probably stronger than they are today. So where is this policy leading? Our leaders have not told us. How do we explain what has happened. I think that to, the, to many of the leaders of the Reagan administration, to them there is no such thing as authentic revolution. To them, all revolutions are made in Moscow and Havana. It's some kind of great secret that people who suffer under the jackboot of military domination for 50 years should just sit there and placidly take it. It seems to me that one of the reasons that the United States is so ineffectual in diplomacy throughout the Third World is that we've forgotten our own revolutionary origins. The idea that I thought was embodied in the Declaration of Independence seemed to me to state that the United States stood for freedom, not only for ourselves, but for all peoples. And it seems to me, it's, we have to be just terribly careful of people who look upon the United States as the policemen of the world. Now, there is such a thing as the security of the United States, and the, pre and the president has a solemn obligation to, to take prudent actions to safeguard the security of the United States. But the security of the United States cannot be interpreted in military terms alone. It's possible, as previous administrations have shown since Franklin Roosevelt John Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, to treat small states with sensitivity, with understanding,
and to gradually bring around by, by diplomacy, by persuasion, by tact, people to your point of view. But if your first reaction is to use the CIA and the Pentagon, then you're going to invite revolutions, and you're going to foment militarization, and you're going to increase the role of the Soviet Union and Cuba in Latin America. So to sum up, to the people of Central America who thought they had a right to expect that any responsible government of the United States would, do, would use its great influence to assist political, economic, and social development, to try to diminish the tensions between and among the states of Central America who thought that the United States had the vision to realize that working your way through out of dictatorship is a difficult and chancy process. We responded to this concern, this hope, by setting neighbor against neighbor, by sending in military assistance, by furnishing guns, guns, and more guns to win the hearts and minds of the people of Central America. And to our allies in Europe and our democratic friends in Latin America who thought that the United States had finally learned its lesson, that counter-revolution is not an adequate answer to a people caught up in this traumatic and difficult process of moving from one stage of political development to another, they see us as having responded to this tragic and complex dilemma with Cold War rhetoric, gunboat diplomacy, and, big, and the big stick. Thank you very much. Mr. White, you've given us a lot to think about and to discuss with you in the moments that lie ahead of us. Let me just take this moment to remind our radio audience that they are listening to the Westminster Thursday Noon Town Hall Forum originating in downtown Minneapolis from Westminster Church at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. Our speaker of the last half hour has been Robert E. White, who for 25 years was in our foreign service with particular emphasis on Latin America. While we're 
Making these acknowledgments, we also will use this time to permit any who must leave to do so, and also to permit those who have questions to complete them and to send them to the aisles that they might be uh, brought forward. Uh, I wish to acknowledge at this time that, and to thank McAllister College for its part in helping to bring Ambassador White here today. And let me also announce that Channel 2 will be having a special program on the crises facing us just now as a country uh, this evening following the uh, President's address and uh, things that uh, Mr. White have shared with us here and other times during this day will be part of that program. We turn now to the question period and while the two gentlemen are beginning to sort, perhaps, sir, I'd uh, put one to you if you'd return to the podium based on uh, my having heard you interviewed on the radio this morning, I think uh, over telephone from your hotel room, actually. I heard you say, and I didn't hear everything you say, said, I heard you say, we snatched defeat out of victory. What, what were you saying? On Sunday, the neighbors of Grenada meeting under the, uh, the Caribbean Common Market had voted to uh, isolate Grenada, not to have any economic commerce with Grenada. That is, the neighbors of Grenada were taking measured, intelligent action designed to move Grenada from one particular mode to another. The United States has, by invading Grenada, made our invasion the issue. In the issue should have been the overthrow of Prime Minister Maurice Bishop by a group of people who had acted in a barbaric way towards Prime Minister Bishop and his government and who killed him. That was the issue and we should have let the, the, uh, the neighbors apply such pressure as they thought proper and maintain consultation with them. Instead, the United States has now rushed in, violated our treaty commitments, and demonstrated again that the United States regards uh, a different way, a different form of development as something that's unacceptable to us and that we will respond to that kind of difference with guns and with military might. And I have to tell you that all this is going to do is going to legitimate uh, actions which the Soviet Union which may, uh, may wish to take in the future. How do you object to the Soviets rolling into Afghanistan uh, if the United States can roll into Grenada? What are the criteria? The criteria that we went into under, in Grenada were 
to restore law and order. That's a pretty elastic criterion uh, when, you know, the Soviet Union wouldn't have any trouble meeting that uh, in many of its problems in Eastern Europe. First question from the audience today. World problems are complex and solutions don't seem to come very easy. You've stated your opinion very clearly and with informed passion, and I respect you for it. You are, however, totally different uh, than the administration, and, con and I consider myself a person of conscience. How do I know who to believe? On what basis can I decide to trust one way of viewing U.S. policy over another? <laughs> Well, I think you just examine uh, the force of the argumentation. Uh, I think that uh, that's a... But it is a difficult question when you uh, hark back to what happened in Grenada only uh, a few days ago. The, the Reagan administration consciously misled the press. And when they consciously mislead the press, they consciously mislead the United States public. They, uh, when for the last week, and even until today, we have had no independent reporting on what is taking place in Grenada. We have only had official handouts by official spokesmen. And I point out to you that that's probably not the best way uh, to, in which an, a citizenry is informed and permitted to make up their minds. Uh, I think that uh, in my own view, and I admit that I am partisan here, I don't know any person with an understanding that goes over the years and experience an understanding of Central America that defends the Reagan policy. The only people that I know that defend the Reagan policy are people who are employed by the United States government. And, you know, that's what they get paid for. But I think that uh, it's, it's very difficult to find people to speak for the administration. And I point out to you, for example, that the Secretary of State, the man primarily charged with elaboration of United States policy has never yet made a statement, a voluntary statement, on Central America. Uh, there's never been a speech by Secretary of State Schultz on Central America. And I think that that tells you something about the difficulty of preparing a case defending administration policy. That what has been most noteworthy about the Reagan administration is that the Pentagon spokesman contradict the White House, who in turn contradict the State Department. And uh, we get varying views about what our objectives are, uh, and indeed um, what we are doing there to, to attain these undefined objectives. So I put it to you that uh, if you feel that you are, if you are confused, uh, I think that it is not only understandable, it may be even part of the intention of the Reagan administration to have you that way.
back to your experience in El Salvador, I came across this quote in uh, uh, an article about you. It said, as ambassador to El Salvador, Robert E. White made headlines. Right-wing extremists attacked him for backing reform and human rights. Left-wing revolutionaries denounced him for frustrating their drive for military victory. Uh, tell us about how it felt to be in the middle. Well, I, I never thought that that was a particularly uncomfortable position. I consider myself to be a man, a middle-of-the-road person. I'm, uh, I still believe that a military victory by the left-wing forces in El Salvador would be uh, dangerous to United States security and a setback to a civilized progressive solution for El Salvador. And this is why I constantly emphasized the need for a negotiated solution. The clearly being ambassador in El Salvador and being shot at from both sides is not a comfortable experience, but it's one that I had been prepared for in a sense because being a career diplomat in Latin America entailed many dangers over the years. And uh, during my career, you know, I was caught up in several revolutions and uh, was hijacked, and so El Salvador was just sort of uh, a little more of the same, a little more concentrated. But I do want to leave you uh, with the idea that The role, the role of the United States in El Salvador and in Central America should be one that seeks not capitulation by either side, but a compromise solution bringing to bear not only the power of the United States, but also utilizing the influence and the knowledge of the neighboring Latin American countries who are far better equipped than are we to understand the motivation, the culture, the problems if, of, of, of El Salvador and Central America. And the refusal of the Reagan administration to back the Contadora group made up of Colombia, Venezuela, Costa Rica, and Panama has been, to me, one of the most revealing and one of the most uh, unfortunate uh, parts of the Reagan policy.